picks comes around, I say to myself, I am not going to do it. I am not going to allow myself to get sucked into some random sport that I do not care about just because Great Britain happened to be good at it. But every time, it happens. Last summer, it was Taekwondo. I do not care about Taekwondo, but for a week, I really cared about Taekwondo. Not because I particularly enjoyed watching it in any, any way, but because Great Britain had a chance at winning gold. And so I was glued to it and I was gripped because I felt that if Great Britain won gold, I would in some way, some small way, some weird, illogical way that because they are from the same geographical space as me, they too hail from this tea-drinking, Q-loving, slightly drizzly island that we call Great Britain, that their victory would in some way be my victory. That is why we watch sport. That's why it's such a big thing of our culture. We, we love to win. It grabbed me because we love this feeling of victory. Judging from what I've heard a little bit from the student games night that happened a week or so ago, some of us like winning a bit too much. We love to win. And so even the slightest association with victory entices us. And as we draw this series on the crucifixion to a close, that's exactly what we're going to focus on this morning. We are going to talk about how the cross is a place of victory. As we have explored looking at the crucifixion in some detail, we have seen that Scripture doesn't just give us one simple cookie-cutter explanation of what the cross is about and what it means to us. But instead, it paints a series of different images throughout the whole of the book and invites us to then approach Scripture from a number of different ways to understand and grasp what it looks like. And it's only when we have a series of these images in our mind and we hold them together that we begin to get a bit of an understanding of what the cross really means. And we've seen that we do need to take this time to look at what the cross looks like. This such a significant event in the whole of human history that the depth of it only starts to become clear to us as we look beyond how it first appears. Because on first view, of course, the cross, it looks anything but like a, a place of victory and victorious. Is this not the place where Jesus, the hero and the center point of the Christian faith, was rejected by his own people, betrayed, denied, and deserted by his closest followers and friends, and then brutally executed in a horrific fashion. How has this event come to be known by anything other than a shameful defeat? Well, this morning we're going to see how the Apostle Paul, in writing to a church in, uh, in Colossae, so that we're going to look at the book of Colossians chapter 2, he describes the cross as a place of victory over our greatest enemy. And not just a victory, not just a win, but a decisive, emphatic, triumphant victory. And so if you're taking notes and you like to have a title, um, I've gone very creative with the message of the title of today's message, just calling it The Victory. So you can put that as a header and underline it. As I said, we're going to read from Colossians 2, where Paul is writing to this church to simply bring some understanding and explanation to what is the cross. And so we're going to read just three verses from verse 13. And you, he says, who were dead in your trespasses, 
and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And most other translations, including the NIV, which you might be reading from, ends that by saying, by triumphing over them by the cross. As you read through the New Testament, I think one of the things that's quite striking about it is that these are not a gloomy people. There is absolutely no sense among the writers and the the, the people receiving these letters that of defeatism and of gloom, but they saw themselves, this early church, as a people of victory. They saw themselves as a people of triumph. And Paul here, I don't think, could really spell it out much, much more clearly. He saw the cross as a place of triumph and of victory. Victory over, as we read in verse 15, the rulers and authorities. Now, a good question to ask at that point then is, if we want to understand this, who are the rulers and authorities? And Paul then helps us in Ephesians chapter 6, where he uh, includes them and expands a little bit. So just reading from Ephesians 6, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities. So there's the rulers and the authorities again. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So he contrasts these rulers and authorities against the flesh and blood enemies, against physical enemies, and then he groups them with the devil, the cosmic powers, and the spiritual forces of evil. And so he's saying this victory of the cross, it's not against the human enemies and the seen enemies, but against invisible spiritual powers. Now, there's a a common assumption, I guess, or it seems to be the common assumption is that today we live in a secular society, a non-spiritual society, that, you know, the, the scientific sophistication that we now have and the enlightenment that we have now got in the West means that the prevailing assumption is that the belief in the, in the spiritual realm is just kind of increasingly getting pushed to the sidelines as a bit of a relic of a time gone by, a bit of a primitive, primitive belief system. And as much as that might be the prevailing attitude and, and what we hear perhaps, I just don't think that that is how the vast majority of people, even in our country, live. In the United States, you will find people, uh, predominantly men, I think, of a certain generation, who will tell you with full conviction, looking at you in the eye, that because they sat in the same seat and drank the same beer and tapped on their cap at the right time in the right moments for every one of the seven games, that is the reason why their team won the World Series back in 82. Or perhaps closer to home. We can go into a, a shop now in, in Manchester City Centre, in some of the most liberal, progressive, forward-thinking areas of the city, and you could buy some crystals from some of the shops there that people would say, and that, again, with, with full conviction, these crystals will change the energy of the room in which you're in, and they can bring harmony and healing to the human body. 
we remain still a, a, a culture and a society where superstition and spirituality reigns. There is something within us that we know. There is something more than just what we can see and just what we can touch. And it's Paul here that's bringing some definition to exactly what that is with the rulers and the authorities. This is not the language of just vague spiritual forces. Rulers and authorities. Sounds like people. The personalities. People with power. Rulers. Powerful and personal spiritual beings that are exerting evil influence over the world. And that's exactly how Jesus himself talks. Just one of the ways in which he would talk about uh, the devil and the other powers that are at work in this world. In John, he talks three times about the prince of this world. The prince, that word there that he's using, is the word they would use for the highest-ranking Roman official. Jesus' diagnosis is that there is a terrible and evil being at work in this world, the most powerful and influential creature in this world is ruling over it, and he is evil. He's saying when sin entered in to this world, it didn't just mean that people started to do bad things, although that is what happened, but he's saying that the underlying reality, what was going on behind all of that, is that a hostile takeover of God's creation was taking place. That the creation that was under the good, right, authority and rule of God, when sin came in, the enemy said, this is mine. I'm getting hold of it. And it became ruled by and under the authority of the devil. And this is not just a sort of theoretical reality, but Paul is in a highly practical teaching that he does later on in the book of Romans. He talks about sin and death as lords over us. So again, that personified powers that are over us and that they are mastering all of us. And he goes on to say, making us slaves on an individual level, slaves to sin. Now, I appreciate that the idea of an invisible power enslaving us to sin may to some extent seem like a little bit of a stretch to you. And if this is your first Sunday with us, firstly, welcome. It's great to have you with us. Secondly, you might be thinking, what on earth is this teaching? (laughs) Where is this going? We don't always preach, spend the first 10 minutes or so speaking about the devil. But I do think that our experience does bear this out. We live in a world that craves freedom, that has spent the vast majority of the the last generation or so, essentially having the human project of how much can we maximize freedom on a human level. And it's just natural to us. We want freedom of where we work, freedom of who we sleep with, freedom of how we spend our time, freedom of how we have our coffee ground and frothed, freedom of uh, experiences that we can have, how we might shape our body. I am old enough to remember a time where if you wanted a can of Coke, you had two options regular diet. Now, lime, cherry, raspberry, vanilla, cinnamon, definitely demonic. (laughs) There's an energy version of Coke. And this week, I saw that they are releasing a special edition of Coke in like these fancy artisan bottles called Coca-Cola Special Edition Smoky Notes. 
or Coca-Cola Special Edition Spicy Note. As your pastor, I beg you, do not drink these drinks. They sound horrendous. There must be dozens of available varieties of Coke. That's too much freedom. But the serious point in here is that the great accomplishment of Western society is we have managed to maximize more than any other time we have pursued freedom for ourselves. We have pushed the human limit of pursuing what freedom might be for us. We live in the freest time, you might want to say. And yet, despite this great promise of freedom, what we see is people are more trapped than ever. We are living through a tidal wave of diagnoses of people in depression, anxiety, particularly among the young. We're in an epidemic of male suicide rising year after year after year. If we really are in a time where freedom is reigning and we have learned what it is to be free as a society, why are so many people, more and more people, saying that they feel imprisoned, even in their own body? It seems like the more that we try and pursue and go after freedom as a society the more we find ourselves in chains and enslaved. Or you might even just want to think about your own experience. Why is it that none of us, none of us can live the good life that we want to live? All of us at some point have thought, I want to make some effort to be less selfish, loving and patient more to the people in my life that I care about. I want to be less snappy with the kids, to use a non-personal example. And that is the life, the genuine life that we do want. We really want that life. And when it comes down to it, we can't do it. And I'm not just talking about our worst moments. I'm talking about even when we're doing okay and you're faced with a conscious choice, I can go this way, which I know is right and good, and I could do that, and that aligns with everything that deep down I really want, or I could do this thing, that I know is sinful, I know is wrong, and I know is damaging and destructive to me, all of us know a time when we have just stepped right in this way. Why? Because we are under the tyranny of the prince of this world. There is an enemy at work in this world right now who has power and authority, who wants to keep us captive and enslaved and take us into destruction. And despite our very best efforts on an individual level or as a society pursuing freedom with all that we have, we can't do it. Our adversary is mighty, he's terrible, and he's strong. And there is nothing we can do to get free from his grip. This sets the stage for then the great cosmic drama that is the life of Jesus on earth. This was the situation that we found ourselves in. That as he enters into creation, he is not simply coming into a a neutral space. He is not looking upon creation and thinking, oh, it looks a little bit broken and people aren't quite behaving as they should. I am going to step in and fix it. Jesus is entering into hostile territory into a realm that is opposed to his very being, a world in rebellion against him, to a people that are hating him, to confront powerful spiritual rulers who are totally committed to his defeat and his destruction. Jesus is coming in to wage war against these powers 
holding us captive. It's coming to overthrow and defeat his enemy. He's coming to reclaim creation that is his, and he's coming to free people from the tyranny of their oppressors. And we see signs of this conflict as soon as Jesus arrives on the scene. That as he shows up and his ministry starts to begin, immediately the prince of this world, the devil, what does he try and do? He tries to exert his authority over Jesus. He, in the wilderness, when Jesus is at his weakest point, he starts to try and influence him and, and be the ruler over him. But in resisting, Jesus shows that he has not come to just be a man under the rule of the evil one, another man coming under his reign, but he himself is one who has come to rule. And so he begins going from place to place, proclaiming this message of the kingdom, proclaiming himself as a king who is coming, one who is coming to oppose the rule and the authority that is already in place. He starts speaking and exerting his authority. It is high drama as he enters into places and just speaks to evil forces and says, come out of people. You must relinquish your grip and your command over their lives. And the enemy comes out. And he starts to undo the effects of a regime of evil by restoring bodies and raising the dead. It's an exhilarating moment and start. The light of the world has arrived. A new king is emerging. The overthrow of evil has begun. And yet, the powers of this world are terrible and mighty. Here before them, these powers, was an opportunity. Not just now to simply frustrate God, get a little bit of ground off him, knock back him, knock him back a little bit. Here is an opportunity before these powers to completely and totally destroy God. Because he's here in creation. And so these terrible and fearsome spiritual beings who had the world in their grip, allied and conspired with the world powers that were at work in those days, the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities to overthrow and crush God himself in Christ. They used all of their evil wisdom to plan in detail a carefully staged drama of the defeat of God. And the cross was its final act. Such was their power that every single detail that they masterminded in their scheme went exactly as they had planned. They were able to get hold of Jesus and manipulate him exactly to their will. To get him in their power, they were able to turn even Jesus' closest friends and associates and his allies against him. To betray him. And desert him so that Jesus would know that he is utterly alone and isolated. And when he was then in the hands of these evil powers, they weakened him to the point of nothingness, inflicting upon him the most cruel and prolonged and intense physical violence that they could, before then displaying their complete superiority over Christ, over God himself, by subjecting him to utter humiliation and degradation, vilifying and dehumanizing him in the most public way, holding him up on a cross, 
to show before the watching world, here hangs the God of the universe. Defeated, humiliated. This was the darkest day in history where all of evil summoned its might and dealt its cruelest blow. As we watch, we see the powers of evil disarming Christ Jesus. They strip him naked and they hold him up to public contempt, to open shame. And then they celebrate their triumphant victory over Jesus himself. And yet, at the cross, as Paul writes, verse 15, he, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities. And he, Christ, put them to open shame. And he, Christ, triumphed over them at the cross. All is not as it seems. As they stripped him naked, he was the one stripping them, disarming them of all of their potency and their power. As they hung him up in humiliation before a watching world, he was making a public spectacle out of them as they celebrated their moment of crowning victory, God is dead, we have won, it was he, Christ, who was emerging victorious and triumphant. He, somehow, in death, showed his power. He came to defeat his enemies. He came to reclaim his creation. He came to free people from their tyranny of the oppressors, And in defeat, he showed himself to be utterly triumphant and victorious. And to underline the definitive and decisive nature of this triumph that Jesus is getting, in verse 15, what Paul is doing is he is drawing an image that would be well known to the the audience that he was writing to. In the UK, generally as a culture, we don't do celebration very well. We do complaining pretty well. We're not so good at the old celebration. I think the closest to what Paul is trying to explain here that comes to our mind culturally perhaps would be another Olympics reference, London 2012. After the great victories of London 2012 and the Olympians that had done so well, there was a victory parade in London afterwards and the streets were absolutely packed. I don't know if you remember it. There's an atmosphere of celebration and rejoicing in this shared victory that we now had as a nation through the success that these Olympians had had. A similar sort of thing is going on that Paul is describing here. When when a king would achieve an emphatic and decisive victory over another. When that king then returned home, what they would do is have this triumphant parade and procession of victory. The streets would be absolutely packed and they would have this just carnival of celebration of all that has been achieved. The sheer noise of it and the the party atmosphere means that if you were in town at that time, you couldn't help be drawn into it. There would be all sorts of things going on and you would have no doubt what it was that was happening Your king has been triumphant. 
your king has been victorious. And so then they would go through the central street in the city, parading and processing the victory. So first would come the spoils of war that have been got, the gold and the artwork and the statues that have been plundered from your enemy. Often these would be ill-gotten gains that your enemy has managed to get hold of. Sometimes even things that he has stolen from you is now been, have now been restored and are coming back through the streets. And then following on from the spoils of war, you would see your king. Your king would come through the streets, and what they would do is they would find the highest chariot they possibly could. They would want to lift him up and put him on this chariot so that he would be seen as mighty and high, and all would be able to see as he rolls through the streets, behold, here is the one who has conquered on your behalf. Here is the man who has brought you victory. Here's the one who's conquered your enemy, secured your, your future, Behold him, celebrate him, rejoice in this king. And then, as significant, was what followed. Behind this chariot would be men walking. Men in chains. Men often stripped naked. Men in disgrace. Bound and enslaved behind your king were your enemies the king of the other kingdom and all of his officials and close generals, defeated and humiliated, put to open shame before you for all the kingdom to see. Look at your enemies now. They can't touch you. They can't harm you. They can't enslave you any longer. And not only was this a huge celebration moment and a party, but this was a deeply significant moment for people to see for themselves. We have to remember this is before instantaneous Instagram stories of events happening across the world that we can see for ourselves all that's going on around the world. This is before video evidence, before the internet, before even newspapers, if you can imagine such a time. This was a time when the truth was easily manipulated and fabricated, unlike today, of course. And so to know the truth, they had to see it for themselves. To know that their king has been victorious and their enemies have been defeated, they needed this moment, this public display, so that they can say, that day I saw for myself my king was triumphant and I saw my enemies defeated and humiliated before me. And it's this image that Paul says is what is happening at the cross. That as the powers conspired to lift Christ up on the cross of Calvary for all to see, to be a public spectacle, little did they know that they were lifting him up to be seated on his throne of victory. Behold the one who has conquered. Behold the one who has defeated your enemy. See your triumphant king. And at the same time as their terrible plan went exactly as they wanted it to, they were condemning themselves to humiliating defeat that they too would be seen by all, put to open shame, so the world would know their power has gone, they have no authority, they have been defeated. Christ gives us the cross 
so that we can see and we can know our enemies have been defeated. A moment in time, a day in our story where our king parades before us. He is victorious. Look at your enemies now. Those who once held us captive and in chains, those that were intent on our misery, our pain, our suffering, our death and our destruction, they really have no power over us anymore. They cannot touch you. They cannot harm you. You're free. As we began the series, we talked about how our instinct is we want to look away from the cross. It is the ugliest and most humiliating part of our faith. But here we see this is why we can't afford to look away. That the cross, as it is, is our greatest comfort. I'm not sure if you've noticed, the last couple of years have been pretty bumpy. Global pandemic that has forced us to completely reorder how we live our lives. And now a conflict in Ukraine that is unlike anything in our gen a generation. These world-defining events, they get us asking questions that we have never had to ask before. What is going to end first, my life or the world? Is there going to be enough food to go round in this country and will there be enough energy to heat it? Are my kids going to grow up in a world of peace or a world of conflict and hostility and disaster? We have been plunged into these world-shifting times of, of uncertainty and just speaking personally, I have found that this has been a time where I have really had to find my comfort can only come from one place. There is only one thing that will never move, one thing that is truly certain. That in these times of it's so easy to fear and we think what might come against us next, the certainty that there is the only thing that can truly harm us has been bound up is in chains and has already been defeated by my king. That means whatever happens on the world stage, whatever comes close to our door, whether wars rage or disasters strike, we know how this story ends. And I don't have to fear, my king has already shown himself to be triumphant. Even that previous example, though, it does invite a question that if the powers have been defeated, why are there global pandemics? Why are there unjust wars? Well, the book of Revelation actually helps us understand, which is maybe not a sentence you'd expect to hear. There's another vivid picture of the cross shown to us in Revelation chapter 12, a great description of, of a great dragon representing the devil, representing the powers of evil, and the picture of this is of this dragon being thrown down from heaven to earth in defeat. And it's clearly talking about the defeat of the enemy at the cross because it says that he is conquered by the blood of the Lamb. There it is again, the victory that comes through the shed blood of Jesus. And it goes on to describe how this dragon that we can read about in chapter 12 of Revelation is furious that he has been defeated. Furious that he has been thrown down 
and that his time is coming to an end. So he decides to make war on earth. He knows he has been defeated. He knows his time is short. His reign is over. And so with the rage of a dragon, he lashes out in fury. But his fate is sealed and his end is certain. That there and throughout Revelation and actually throughout the New Testament, Scripture seems to suggest that our experience of evil here on earth will actually increase the closer we get to the end, the closer we get to the final defeat of evil. And so Scripture comes to us to comfort us and reassure us to know this is not because evil is getting stronger. This is because evil has been dealt a mortal wound. It knows its strength is failing, its time is near, and so it is trying to do as much damage as it possibly can before it is finally condemned. The cross is the fatal undermining of the foundations of the kingdom of evil. With Jesus' last three words on the cross, it is finished. He was declaring a verdict over evil that is our promise. There is a day coming of final judgment where evil will be cast out forevermore and there will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering, no more tears, no more illness, no more unjust wars, no more death. A day of final victory is coming. And until that, we are invited to align ourselves and associate ourselves with this victory that Christ has accomplished. This vivid picture of the triumphal procession of the city, through the city, it comes to us, I think, with a provoking question. Where do our allegiances lie? As we draw a series, this series to a close, we have seen from different angles and different perspectives, the cross is not all that it first appears. Although it seems to be only a place of horror, the, the most godless of places, we have seen this is actually the place where God is most present, the place where he is most at work to rescue us and save us. It's the place where Jesus has covered our sins, where he has taken our place and become our substitute, where he has borne our condemnation. And here we see it is the place where he has accomplished for us a supreme victory. And he wants us to see this cross as it really is. That he, as he is lifted up high, is not being shamed before the world, but is being enthroned so that all may see him in his glory. And he wants us to see the powers as they are. They might be raging around us. It might seem like evil is going to get the last word, but he wants us to see they have been bound up. They have been stripped of all power and shamed before a watching world. And the invitation of the cross is for us to see the cross as it is and to choose to align ourselves with the king, the greatest victory. There is only one winning side. Christ is the only path to victory. And so as we share communion in just a moment, you might want to use this as a time, a moment 
to see Jesus even in your death, which is what communion represents for us, his broken body, his spilled blood, even in your death. Jesus, you are victorious. I want to choose this path again. I want to choose to align myself with you and be on your side to pledge your allegiance once again. So could we have the band up? We're going to not only break bread together as we bring this series to an end, as we have most of the times, all of the times, I think, as we've been speaking in this series, but as people of victory and as people of triumph, let's take a moment to celebrate as well. Let's sing a song. One of our responsibilities, our duties, in fact, of being people of victory is to proclaim that victory of Christ until he returns. It is so easy to forget that this is the narrative that we live in. This is our story. This is the drama. Don't you find that? So easy to forget. Christ has won. All evil has been defeated. And we keep it in our soul. It stays real to us by us saying it to one another, whether through words or in a moment by just simply singing it. We're singing when we worship to God, but also to each other, to strengthen one another in the truth once again. And so today, that's exactly what we're going to do. I'd love to invite you to stand as we sing. The band will lead us in a song. And as we sing, I'd love to invite you to also go and get some bread and some grape juice from over there. Um,